Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Patrick Byrne, chair of the Head and Neck Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Byrne is here today to discuss novel strategies for facial reconstruction after cancer extirpation. So welcome. Thank you so much. So maybe to start, you can uh, tell us a little bit about your role here at Cleveland Clinic. You've recently joined us and tell us a little bit about what you're doing here. Oh yeah, thanks so much. So my specialty is facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. I perform uh, microsurgical facial reconstruction for a variety of conditions as well as aesthetic surgery. And I came from Johns Hopkins after 18 years to help lead the uh, Head and Neck Institute, which includes uh, a huge part of our program is head and neck cancer and our head and neck cancer surgeons. All right. So maybe to start, we have a a wide range of physicians that may be listening. Um, Tell us a little bit about facial reconstruction techniques that that you use after cancer extirpation. Yeah. So cancer, as it relates to the head and neck, really falls into two main categories. There are aerodigestive tract cancers. So these are tumors that require the removal or at least some form of treatment of the tongue, the palate, the jaw, the throat, the voice box. Uh, And then there are uh, the other large category are cutaneous malignancies. So these are cancers of the skin, which um, tend to be more common on the face and head and neck than they are other areas of the body. So what what binds these two major categories is uh, most of the treatments do involve surgical extirpation. So uh, our cancer surgeons have to remove varying degrees of skin, muscle, uh, mucosa, and bone. Uh, And therefore, the reconstructive needs are to, as best as possible, restore those structures. So what are some of the the primary ways that that happens? What, what, what kind of techniques do you use? By and large, we use autologous tissue. So that means we're going to take skin, muscle, fat, bone, you know, whatever's missing, and we're going to try to recreate the missing anatomy as best as we can using the patient's own tissue. The biggest uh, sort of monumental change in the past, in our lifetime, certainly is we moved from regionally transferring tissue. So this means, you know, you take tissue that's fairly close to the defect and, and you rotate and move it and try to adapt it to the local environment. The big change, which really started um, in earnest in the 1990s, is microvascular free tissue transfer. So this is basically a transplant on oneself. We're able to completely disconnect skin, muscle, bone, a combination thereof from remote areas of the bodies of the body, uh, reconfigure it, and then replace the missing tissue and allow it to survive by connecting to blood vessels in the face or neck. So that's been the biggest change in in our lifetime. What has really been exciting in the past decade is most of the progress really has been around enhancing those techniques. So what was often a interminably long tech set of techniques with a high failure rate and outcomes both functionally aesthetically that left much to be desired, by and large, especially the past decade, we've learned how to do these techniques much more quickly with uh, lower complication rates 
And our functional aesthetic outcomes have actually gotten quite a bit better over time. So certainly as, uh, as people sort of in the, in the lay press and, you know, physicians in general, we see the face transplants and the big splashy surgeries. And, and how have the developments that led to face transplants helped our cancer patients with the surgeries that they are getting? Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, I was one of the co-directors of the face transplant team at Johns Hopkins. And, and coming, you know, coming into that world after a decade or so of performing a high volume of cancer microvascular reconstructions, um, it, it's very, very complimentary. So one of the things that, you know, might be a surprise to some in the audience is uh, in many ways, a face transplant in terms of the technical demands uh, are, are really uh, quite a bit simpler than most of the cases that are done for major head and neck cancer. You know, the, and the way to think about that that makes it intuitive is, you know, if we're going to replace a, an entire upper jaw uh, in a cancer patient, it's a very, it's a relatively common thing for us to do here. But what we have to do is take a straight bone from the leg, the fibula, we have to configure it in, by making cuts in the bone to convert this long rod-shaped object into a more three-dimensional object that mimics the upper jaw. We have to wrap skin from the lateral leg around it to replace the missing tissue of the palate so they can speak in here. We have to perch on top of it a bent titanium plate to hold the eyeball in just the right position so they don't have double vision. We have to kind of configure some fat around it so it's a soft cheek so it looks natural, right? You get the picture. It's, it's, it's an unbelievably complex task. We have people like Michael Fritz here in our Head and Neck Institute who have taken this to a new art form. If you compare that to a face transplant, you know, you, we just take off a perfect part most and just plug it in, you know? So technically, it's, it's clearly simpler. But where face transplant has just uh, kind of a lot, I'm really excited about that the field because there are a couple of areas which have resisted effective solutions with traditional techniques. And mostly it's the sphincter function of the lips and the sphincter function of the eyelids. We, we haven't yet, there is progress, there's hope uh, in work being done, but that's where traditional techniques really um, don't offer what we really want for our patients, which is to approach normalcy. And I guess another component that would be different with a face transplant compared to cancer is that radiation is a big component of head and neck cancers. And how does that play into what you're able to do from a reconstruction standpoint? Yeah, fantastic question. And you're absolutely right. The majority of our patients. So, you know, we had several cases like this yesterday and and, and thank God for our radiation oncologists and the, the fact that they were able to increase our cure rates. Uh, and so given that trade-off, we'll take having to deal with the ravages of radiation in someone who's been cancer-free, you know, uh, because it, it can work. Uh, so, it's, you know, we're happy to take that on, but enormous challenge. And, and you know, the, the, the most kind of advanced manifestation of that is probably osteoradionecrosis, where there's a percentage of head and neck cancer patients uh, due to the course of their radiation component of their adjuvant therapy, um, they're going to develop a, a very serious complications of their jaw, usually the lower jaw, sometimes the upper jaw. Uh, and it does progress in times where it's unsalvageable. Again, here's an area where there's been some major advances. 
Fritz and Genther and others here have developed minimal access techniques to um, take vascularized tissue from the thigh and wrap bone that has a marginal blood supply. And in the past, we would have just tried hyperbaric oxygen and probably end up resecting the bone. We found that we can save a high percentage of those mandibles. And, and it's a short stay kind of experience for patients. It's really kind of a game changer. But, but to your point, absolutely, the, the, the challenge is we, we have to anticipate uh, in advance often radiation. And so that means we err towards um, bringing in hypervascularized tissue to protect against these future effects. And then for, for many patients, we just have to deal with it with these same techniques to provide more vascularized healthy tissue. It's an, it's an ongoing, constant part of our lives. When you mentioned earlier about the difficulties getting things the right size and shape, and you think about using bones, and how much progress, how much change has there been uh, using bone versus artificial sort of things like you mentioned titanium, but are there other things that are coming into play in terms of use for these surgeries? Yeah, it's a great question. Again, it, it's a really exciting area. We found that as long as the soft tissue coverage and, and blood supply is sufficient, there are many areas of the maxillofacial skeleton that we can actually use substitutes. So an example that's very common is our work with the neurosurgeons around cranioplasty. You know, the, the skull under the scalp is not a weight-bearing uh, bone. Uh, the demands on it in terms of functionality are relatively low in comparison to other areas. So we find a host of uh, alloplastic materials, polyether, ether ketone, and titanium, and uh, porous polyethylene. There's, there's a number of materials we can use to replace pretty large segments of the skull, actually. Uh, and that's been just really, really helpful. There's some interesting research being done about even having translucent cranioplasty materials that can transmit ultrasound waves through it, for example, to monitor intracranial conditions. So we're really excited about that. And there are other areas in, in the, the load-bearing requirements, the mechanical requirements of the jaw have resisted that to date. So, so far, and you'll read sometimes these reports of artificial jaws, but by and large, we, we we're not really able to apply those meaningfully in a lot of clinical situations because we, we, we demand so much in terms of the load-bearing requirements on the jaw that we generally use autologous tissue. But even there, tremendous research. Uh, Dr. Gassman here, for example, in plastic surgery is doing a trial looking at the use of adipose-derived stem cells to seed and, and grow new bone when uh, bone is insufficient. My personal belief is that these hybrid strategies where we're using tissue engineering techniques uh, bioengineering materials and reconstructive surgery uh, strategies in combination are really going to be the next the next wave. And so I think I think the future is bright. I think we'll see some major breakthroughs within the next five years in terms of the lower facial skeleton. I know it's uh, become popular in some areas of medicine and and reconstruction. How about three D printing? Yeah, you know, we do use it some, uh, and again, there's a lot of reports you'll read about, you know, this goes back to years about 3D printing jaws and what have you. Again, the load-bearing requirements, particularly in our radiated patients, you know, makes that a bit of a, probably a premature uh, conversation in terms of immediate clinical applicability. But 3D printing is still very helpful. So it's useful, for example, again, on maxillofacial reconstruction for creating templates 
For example, we will often, for very complicated cases, uh, we can do some pre-surgical planning. And, you know, this is an amazing workflow that is really seamless now. A recent case I was involved in, for example, is a woman with fibrous dysplasia, massive bony overgrowth of her upper and lower jaw. And it was a very complicated case because we wanted to replace her jaw, upper and lower, with bone from the leg. And, but we really wanted to make sure that the dentition aligned as perfectly as possible so she could you know, chew and have a normal life. So the oral maxillofacial surgeon, the plastic surgeon, myself as the microvascular surgeon, and some of our technologists who work with private industry were able to create uh, 3D printed versions of her facial skeleton. We can perform, therefore, practice runs, not only on the computer, but on a real three-dimensional object uh, to design our surgery, uh, and then even create cutting guides. So what this means is we can have in the fibula bone and leg during on surgical day, a device that tells us precisely where to place the blades. And so the cuts are pre-made and it ensures optimal accuracy. Not every case needs that, but when both the upper and lower jaw are being reconstructed and you want the teeth to line up, that's an incredibly complicated thing. Uh, 3D printing and pre-surgical planning have been phenomenal for this. And it takes more work up front, but you had mentioned previously that a lot of the new techniques decrease operating time and things like that. So, Yeah, we think operating, operating time, number of revision surgeries. So we, we believe there's a credible healthcare value argument to be made with a lot of these technology-based pre-surgical efforts. Um, and you're, I think you're spot on shorter, shorter stays, lower complications, and better functional outcomes also reducing revision surgeries. So which patients benefit most from coming to see us here at Cleveland Clinic and kind of take advantage of what we have to offer? Well, the reason I came, um, there's a lot of reasons I chose to come here to become chairman of the Head and Neck Institute. I'm thrilled that I'm here. Clearly, the quality of our head and neck cancer care is, it's, it's truly remarkable. People know how great the head and neck cancer care team is here, but probably not to the degree that is deserved. We see a very high volume. It's complex care. So we tend to see um, tertiary cases, quaternary cases, and the outcomes are phenomenal. What's unique here, I think, in my experience, uh, if you look across the landscape of the top tier uh, locations for head and cancer care is, I think the emphasis on clinical outcomes excellence here is certainly unsurpassed. And so, you know, really any patient with head cancer is, I don't believe there's a better place on planet Earth where you could be treated. And a big part is this topic, the integration of the head and cancer surgeons with the reconstructive surgeons is seamless. They work together every single day. Yesterday was three different rooms running with, you know, three double sets of teams. Uh, the rooms were all out the door by you know, 5, 6 p.m., probably three free flaps and a bunch of other cases. It's, there really is a clinical machine here that produces quite excellent outcomes. It's a, it's a, it's a special place. What, what sort of multidisciplinary team is in place? Well, the in Towsig, the head and cancer patients are treated with a really an amazing a multidisciplinary team. So that includes the medical oncologists, the radiation oncologists, the head and cancer surgeons. They have a weekly tumor board, so all patients are um, discussed and treatment plans agreed upon. Uh, they actually see patients together in clinics. So that's been a great innovation. 
that I credit, Dr. Bowell, the Cancer Institute is sort of a spearheading over the many years now. And so there is truly integrated uh, care. And it is, the benefits are proven really in the outcomes. And then things like social work and what, what sort of support do you guys provide? Because certainly, uh, you know, there's a huge component when you have facial reconstructions and things like that. Yep. There, there's a, a real emphasis on social work and, and even beyond that, some of the um, specific rehabilitation measures. So one of our gyms here is a uniquely experienced and frankly compassionate, committed speech language pathology group. So for patients, for example, who have a, a number of these procedures, but the, probably the most obvious is a laryngectomy where the voice box is removed and you know, they're reconstructing the tissue often from the thigh to create a new throat to swallow through. And, and they're uh, rehabilitated in terms of their speech with a number of uh, techniques. We have a, a team of speech language pathologists that works with those patients before surgery and then for months after surgery. And they see them in the hospital and then they see them in the outpatient center and their clinics are adjacent to our head cancer surgeries. Uh, so it's, it's a wonderful model where we assign the, the specialists who can best help specific needs to work in, intently and over a dura long duration with patients to make sure we get them to their functional outcomes as best as possible. What you can do is sort of abandon these patients, just like you sort of intimated with the question. You can't go through this massive cancer surgery, reconstructive surgery, and then tell patients, okay, good luck, you know, and send them home. Like it's, it's overwhelming to patients. So we really focus on the family and their support and, and the rehab. What are the biggest limitations? I think, you know, one we touched on, which is um, some of the dynamic aspects of reconstruction. Um, we've made huge strides. So, you know, my major focus academically and clinically has been on a topic called facial reanimation. So that's not just restoring the static structures of um, maxillofacial reconstruction, but also the dynamism. And so we are dramatically better now than we were 10 or 20 years ago in taking muscle from other areas of the body, connecting it to targeted motor nerves in the face and neck, and coaxing function out of it. So, for example, helping people smile again after radical cancer surgery that removes their facial nerve. We've actually gotten quite good at that. Um, we're now moving into blink restoration. And so we have a number of patients we've been able to restore a functional blink to. That's one of the trickiest things in all of reconstructive surgery. Um, but we're adapting and innovating some of the existing techniques for dynamic smile restoration. We're starting to apply that to the eyelid. And then, you know, the, the sphincter function of the mouth, which I mentioned, that's, that's a tricky one. Um, we've had a number of patients we've been able to get good outcomes, though, again, adapting some of the um, smile restoration techniques to a functional uh, sphincter effect. So I think that's an, the next big wave where we want to um, evolve our techniques on how to restore movement, uh, both for the functional and the social aspects. So from an aspect of how you can best help patients, are patients generally getting to you to, at the right time? You mentioned with the radiation, for instance, trying to sort of think ahead in terms of what might be required is there an educational effort to have someone maybe see you like at the very beginning to sort of plan out the map of what's going to happen? I believe you're right. I, I believe there is lost opportunity. We see more patients than I wish. Uh, one who've had cancer surgery and I think, 
you know, I would say could have been managed and the reconstructed needs a little better. Uh, and we can help those people for sure. But your best chance is at the first surgery usually. You know, so, you know, a simple example would be the parotid gland. So that's a, the largest salivary gland. It sits in front of our ear and, and, you know, people can get tumors in the salivary gland that are sometimes cancer. We see a pretty high number of patients every year who've had a cancer surgery to remove the gland, the facial nerve is damaged, and they're left with complete facial paralysis, as well as an unsightly divot in their face, you know, where there's a depression that they're self-conscious about. Um, that is largely preventable, actually. And, you know, our team has a strategy where they use a variety of techniques to restore the volume and the function and the support at the time of the cancer surgery. So before they get their radiation, they've got all the components in place uh, with a, a healthy influx of vascularized tissue, which helps them manage that radiation as well. So I don't think it can happen too soon. I think with the cancer diagnosis, ideally you would be plugged into a multidisciplinary team. That's great. Uh, so you've provided some great insight today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Dale, so much. and appreciate all you're doing in this space. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.